Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tanya Wright, and this podcast is designed for medical students that are currently rotating on their OB-GYN clerkship. Today, we're going to be covering the APCO Learning Objective, topic number 23, Third Trimester Bleeding. This is also covered in Chapter 16 of your Beckman and Ling textbook, the 8th edition. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Amy Cruz. Dr. Cruz is a generalist obstetrician gynecologist here at the Hershey Medical Center, and she's going to help us work through this case and answer some questions. Dr. Cruz, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get started with the case. So this is a 25-year-old G2P1 at 32 weeks who was brought to labor and delivery by her husband. About an hour ago, she was watching television when she suddenly noted a gush of bright red blood vaginally. The bleeding was heavy and soaked through her clothes, and she has continued to bleed since then. She denies any cramps or abdominal pain. She says that her last sexual intercourse was about a week ago. A review of her prenatal chart finds nothing remarkable other than a borderline high blood pressure from her first prenatal visit. She has not required any medication for this. There's no mention of bleeding prior to this episode. She had an ultrasound to confirm pregnancy at eight, at sorry, 14 weeks, but none since then. On physical exam, she's extremely pale, and her blood pressures are now 98 over 60, her pulse is 130, respirations at 30, and temperature 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Her abdomen is soft without guarding or rebound to palpation, and the uterus is non-tender and firm, but not rigid. Fundal height is 33 centimeters. Fetal heart tones are in the 140s with good variability. The external monitor reveals uterine irritability, but no discrete contractions are seen, and there is a steady stream of bright blood coming from her vagina. Dr. Cruz, what is your differential diagnosis for potential causes of bleeding in this particular patient? So some things you could think about are placental abruption, uh, vasa previa or placenta previa, um, any sort of genital laceration due to trauma, like a labial, vaginal, or cervical laceration, uh, potentially a foreign body, uh, cervical or vaginal cancer, um, any sign of cervicitis, or um, sometimes just a bloody show with the start of preterm labor. So given this differential diagnosis, what steps would you then take to evaluate this patient? So the first thing you want to do is take a comprehensive and detailed history. And while you're doing so, you want to make sure you're assessing maternal hemodynamic status, so serial vital signs and um, any hematologic studies to assess for acute anemia or DIC. Another thing you want to do is confirm your placental location. Um, so ultrasound could be used to determine the position of the placenta. And while you're doing this, you want to avoid a digital cervical exam until you've determined this. The next thing you want to do is assess fetal status. Um, so this can be done with continuous external fetal monitoring or through an ultrasound uh, biophysical assessment. Another thing you could consider is a Kleihauer betke test, and this would test for maternal fetal hemorrhage. Got it. So when you're talking about hematologic studies to assess for acute anemia and DIC, what would those labs actually be? So the, as far as the looking for anemia, just a general CBC with platelet level would be important. Looking at DIC in particular, um, you could look at your COAG panel, so PT, uh, INR, PTT, and particularly fibrinogen. 
Also, Dr. Cruz, the KB test, the Cly Howey Betke test, this has always been a little bit confusing for me to kind of work through how valuable this would be. I know in particular patients that are of the negative blood type, it's sometimes important to figure out how much of those fetal red blood cells have crossed over um, into the maternal circulation. So this would be a blood test for mom that would assess the amount of fetal red blood cells that have crossed over, um, indicating a maternal fetal hemorrhage. This is particularly important in patients that are RH negative because we actually would administer a certain amount of Rogam to be able to um, basically be an antidote for those fetal red blood cells that have crossed over to decrease the risk of alloimmunization in the future. Um, does this serve any real purpose in patients that are not RH negative? The purpose in non-RH negative patients would just be to quantify the amount of maternal fetal hemorrhage. If you see more uh, significant hemorrhage, that would be potentially more concerning for her clinical status. Got it. So let's talk firstly, let's work through your differential diagnosis, Dr. Cruz, and the first one would be um, placental abruption. What exactly is that? So placental abruption occurs when there's separation of the placenta from the uterine wall prior to delivery of the fetus. It typically occurs in about one in and it accounts for about 30% of the cases of third trimester. is also a 25% recurrence risk in future pregnancies. Why would a placental abruption happen to any particular patient? Are there specific risk factors? Sure. So one risk factor is hypertension, either pre-existing or gestational hypertension, um, any sort of substance abuse like uh, cocaine or tobacco use in particular, any abdominal trauma could increase risk, um, sudden uterine decompression, which sometimes happens with uh, large rupture of membranes, and preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes is also a risk factor. Yeah, you know, I distinctly remember in preparation for our steps, that one classic presentation of placental abruption associated with maternal cocaine use. And so when you see those associations, you're definitely thinking that this could be related to placental abruption. That's right. So how would patients present with a placental abruption? So classically, a placental abruption is uh, presented as uh, painful bleeding. So um, frequently they will have uterine contractions or hypertonicity seen on the tocometer. Um, they do present with um, bleeding, which sometimes can be catastrophic. You may also see non-reassuring fetal heart rate testing. Other things that would be supportive of the diagnosis are a low fibrinogen level, which could be seen with DIC. And this does occur in about 10 to 20% of severe abruption cases. Yeah, a d uh, fibrinogen levels less than 200 are very predictive um, of uh, ongoing placental abruption. Something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, what about a placenta previa? What is that? So placenta previa occurs when the placental tissue covers the cervical os. So you can have a central or complete previa, which completely covers the os. A uh, partial previa um, partially covers the cervical os. And then a marginal previa is when the placental edge is adjacent to the os, but doesn't cover it. Low-lying placenta is when the placenta is close to the cervical os, usually about one to two centimeters within, its, um, within the range of the os, um, but it's not actually covering it. So at about 24 weeks, one in 20 pregnancies will demonstrate that a placenta previa on ultrasound, but this typically resolves as the pregnancy progresses, and at 40 weeks, it, the incidence goes down to one in 200. Placenta previa in general accounts for about 20% of cases of third trimester bleeding. 
What would be some risk factors for placenta previa? Some risk factors include um, things that are prior surgery to the uterus, so prior cesarean delivery, a history of a myomectomy, an increasing number of uh, uterine curatage previously. These can increase um, the risk of abnormal placentation. Other things include increased parity or multiple gestation, so if you have more uh, placenta, you are covering more surface area, so that increases risk of previa. And then other things include advanced maternal age and smoking. And how do patients with placenta previous typically present, and how would this differ from patients that are presenting with a suspicion of a placental abruption? Sure. So as we said, placental abruption is painful bleeding, whereas placenta previa is typically painless bleeding. Um, So this may occur after an inciting incident such such as intercourse or just may occur spontaneously as the cervix starts to dilate a little bit. Some of these patients do, however, present with contractions, so it's really important to do your ultrasound assessment first to differentiate um, the previa from an abruption. What do you think about radiographic findings of placental abruption? Is this something that we can typically diagnose on ultrasound? So a placental abruption has to be fairly large for it to be seen adequately on ultrasound. Uh, Most placental abruptions are diagnosed clinically rather than on uh, radiographic imaging. So that brings us to vasa previa, something else that you listed in the differential for this patient. What is that? So vasa previa occurs when there are fetal uh, vessels, particularly in a velamentous cord insertion, and these cover the cervical os. This is a very rare scenario that occurs in less than 1% of all pregnancies. And risk factors for that? The only real major risk factor is multiple gestation. It can occur in up to 11% of twins and even 95% in triplet pregnancies. Cool. And what about some of the other causes that you listed? How would you be able to figure those out? So a lot of these can be assessed through a detailed history or, uh, and physical exam. So things like uh, cervicitis, erosions, any trauma, um, foreign body, and then uh, bloody show with signs of labor. Okay. So we have this patient who is 32 weeks pregnant, presenting with copious amounts of red blood vaginally to the point where her blood pressures are 90s over 60s. She is tachycardic. Um, What steps would you take to manage her low blood pressure and her tachycardia? So the first thing you want to do is make sure that her vitals are stable. So you want to make sure you have serial blood pressure, heart rate, and respiration monitoring. Um, You want to ensure you have an adequate airway, so maybe having continuous pulse oximetry oximetry on her um, would be helpful. Um, Then you want to start thinking about your resuscitative measures, so establishing IV access. Ideally, she should have two large bore IVs. If you're unable to obtain that, you could think about central venous access. And then you want to start monitoring your um, serial blood panels, so um, checking CBC and platelets and then looking at your coagulation panels. Once you've established um, your IV access, the next thing to do is Uh, volume resuscitate. So this is usually initially started with crystalloid. Um, If she's not responding or if you think she's lost too much blood, you could consider transfusion. Um, This could be as simple as packed red blood cells, or you could think about other things like platelets, fresh frozen plasma, or cryoprecipitate. Then you want to continue to monitor to make sure that um, your resuscitative measures are actually working. Um, Continue monitoring her vitals, um, checking her urine output as Uh, the degrees of shock progress, your urine output would then decrease as you're trying to conserve volume. 
when you're thinking about, um, in general, management of third trimester hemorrhage, a lot of your delivery or a lot of your planning depends on gestational age. So if you have a term baby, you first want to stabilize the mother and then you want to think about delivery. A lot of times in preterm cases, we try to weigh the pros and cons of a, a preterm baby versus maternal stability. Are any of these patients presenting with abruption versus previa versus um, vasoprevia candidates for vaginal delivery? So with uh, placenta previa and vasa previa, these patients are always indicated for a cesarean delivery. Um, unfortunately, they're not able to have a vaginal delivery through the placenta or through the vessel. So um, these are indications for a cesarean. With abruption, it depends on the clinical setting. So if the patient is um, hemodynamically stable and you're able to monitor for labor and the um, fetus is tolerating labor, um, then potentially the, the patient could have a vaginal delivery. However, in the setting of persistent hemodynamic instability or um, fetal distress, these would be reasons to proceed with a cesarean delivery. Okay. So under what circumstances would you consider blood product transfusion? Sure. So uh, blood transfusion, typically we think about when there's acute blood volume loss. Um, so if the patient has lost 30% to 40% of the blood volume, you could consider a transfusion at this point. Um, we also, with um, postpartum hemorrhage in general, we think about if you have 1,500 milliliters of blood loss and ongoing bleeding, you could also think about transfusion in those settings. So if you're able to estimate your blood loss um, and determine based on that. Another reason to think about transfusion is if you have a patient who has a chronic anemia and their hemoglobin uh, on evaluation is low, such as less than 7, or if you have a patient who has existing cardiovascular or pulmonary disease, if their value is less than 10, um, you could consider transfusion. Additionally, if you're... Um, your hemo or, uh, hematologic evaluation shows any abnormalities in coagulation. So again, if you have a fibrinogen less than 200, if you have a prolonged PTT or uh, platelets less than uh, 20,000, you could consider transfusion. If C-section is indicated, uh, platelets less than 50,000 would also be a reason to give platelets. General knowledge related to blood product replacement I think is important for all students regardless of what careers they pursue or their clinical rotations. So I think we should review some of those. Don't you agree? Yes, that would be great. So we can start firstly with packed red blood cells or you know abbreviated as uh, PRBCs. Um, you'll typically hear uh, staff and faculty in residence say I'd like to transfuse one unit of PRBCs. What exactly does one unit translate to and what would we expect to be the effectiveness of this? So packed red blood cells, as it implies, it contains only red blood cells. One unit is about 350 milliliters in amount, and this typically will increase hematocrit by about three percentage points. What about fresh frozen plasma, also abbreviated as FFP? So this typically is, um, is, as far as volume, is about 200 to 300 milliliters. It contains all of the clotting factors, um, but it does not contain platelets. It's typically used for deficiencies in multiple clotting factors, such as in a patient with DIC. And typically, one unit of FFP will increase fibrinogen by about 7 to 10 milligrams per deciliter. And cryoprecipitate? 
So cryoprecipitate has fibrinogen as well as factors 8, 13, and von Willebrand factor. It is a very concentrated um, transfusion method. It, um, so one bag is only 10 to 15 milliliters. So um, these are particularly useful in patients who you don't want to volume overload and you're really trying to get a lot of fibrinogen or clotting factors into um, your patient. So 10 bags of cryoprecipitate will increase fibrinogen by about 70 milligrams per deciliter. Um, so a lot of increase in a low volume. Awesome. And then finally, platelets? So platelets are typically um, derived from whole blood um, as a pool, or they're taken as one unit as a apheresis-derived platelets. Um, so these are typically in four or six pack units and usually will increase the platelet count by about 30,000 per transfusion pack. Dr. Cruz, thank you so very much once again for reviewing a very, very high yield topic for the students today. Um, hope to have you back again. Thanks so much.